0: Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance.
1: You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's show is going to be really interesting for you because we're going to talk about some things that you probably haven't heard of. You might have heard of attachment theory. You've certainly heard of about trauma on the show before and how it can turn some things on in your brain that you probably don't know are going on. And hypnosis, even, we've covered a little bit. But when you tie that back to ancient traditions of meditation and uh, things that are are part and parcel to how I became a biohacker, how I became who I am today. Uh, it's a Buddhist meditation master. Oh, except he's also an associate clinical professor of psychology at Harvard who has taught hypnotherapy and has been on faculty for 40 years. So we're talking about a man who is really one of the masters, and that is a big point of uh, what I do with the show. I get to learn from the masters, you get to learn from the masters. His name is Dan Brown, a PhD, and a real expert in what trauma does to us, especially in early childhood. Dan, it is a great honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much.
2: My pleasure, thank you for hosting me.
1: 40 years of being on faculty at Harvard, what has changed in your field over 40 years that has you most hopeful?
2: I think uh, the teaching of medicine has changed. We're much more interpersonal now, much more sensitive to the needs of the client.
1: Why did it change?
2: Because it used to be operated under a third-surgeon model in the 1950s and 60s, which was teaching students by shaming them. Oh, you them. wow. <laughs> Just throw now it out it's, there. Now, it's, now there's so much to learn that people have to team up. So is responsible for collecting a certain amount of information different from the team, so it's non-competitive and it's all sharing-based. So that's changed r- r- remarkably.
1: That is a big shift in a relatively short period of time. Uh, it, it seems like in medicine, historically, it's almost taken one generation to pass away for the next one to come in and, and create incremental change. Do you feel like it's the, the pace of change in medicine is accelerating?
2: Yeah, it's too much information, so it's, it's hard to keep up with it all.
1: Let's talk about attachment first, and then I want to talk about you know, the ancient bone traditions and things that, that you've studied. Uh, but attachment, what is it? Because a lot of people listening may not understand even the basics of what it is, but just walk me through how it how it happens and what it is.
2: There are two relational maps. The first one forms at about 12 to 20 months, and that's the attachment map. The second one forms about third and fourth year of life, that's called the CCRT or core conflict relationship theme map. The difference between those two maps is the second map is much more complicated and it's much more accessible to memory. So the difference, put simply, is that the difference between whether you have trouble with relationships or within relationships. So attachment map is about with trouble with relationships.
1: So trouble with relationships. So if someone is having a hard time in a relationship, what is the likelihood that their attachment patterns from early childhood are playing a major
2: role? High, very high. So the the attachment field started with Bowlby's work in the nineteen forties. He saw attachment as an interplay between providing a secure base for the infant, and the more they, the paradox of human attachment is the more secure they feel in the relationship, the more they explore and become independent. So he found attachment to be an interplay, or inter, inter interfacing of two complex issues. One is attachment and bonding, and the other is exploration. And in the 1950s and 60s, Mary Ainsworth developed a laboratory paradigm to directly observe kids in the attachment phase, so that kids of 10 to 20 months have in into the laboratory in what's called a strange situation. They're, they're put in an unfamiliar playroom, there's two chairs in the room, there's a bunch of toys on the floor, and there's a big plastic box filled with toys, they give you no instructions. And for three minutes, you watch what happens between the mother and the child. Secure kids will settle down in the playroom and get used to it, and they'll get interested in more and more of the toys. And then, and, and they they'll look to the mother and check in with the mother and see that they're secure. And then they'll you know, venture further out and check in again and venture further out. That's secure attachment. After three minutes, a stranger walks into the room unannounced, confederate to the research, and you see the child's differential response to the stranger and how that affects the play behavior. After three minutes, the stranger leaves. And the mother leaves, and then the room is in and the strangers in there with the room with the child for three minutes. You see how the stranger affects the presence, affects the play behavior. Then the mother comes back and the stranger leaves. And you see the reunion behavior, how that affects the play behavior. Then the mother leaves the second time and the child is left alone in the room this time. You see how that affects the play behavior. So you get all the possibilities in there. And there are four possibilities that come up. Securely attached kids show a differential response and preference for the mother. And the more secure they feel in the room with the mother, the more complex the play behavior gets. They explore more. Kids who grow up to have what we call dismissing attachment, they just deactivate the attachment system. They just do the toys. They don't care the mother's presence, whether they're alone, or whether they're with a stranger. They just don't seem to connect with a relationship. They deactivate the attachment system, and they just have a kind of pseudo-independence in adulthood, we call it that dismissing attachment. They don't connect easily in relationships. The opposite of that is what's called anxious-preoccupied attachment. Those are kids who who shut down the exploratory system, and they get over-clinging in the attachment system. So they can't play in the strange situation in an unfamiliar environment. They just only can, can cling to the mother. And when the mother leaves, they get disorganized and they can't, they can't play anymore. And they're unconsolable when the mother comes back. And then the fourth kind is where you deactivate both the attachment system and the exploratory system. We call that disorganized attachment. So those are the four paradigms.
1: What percentage of people, I'm just going to say over 18 uh, in the world today, do you think have those attachment systems mostly, mostly done this right? There's good
2: research both in North America and in Europe, in the West. And the figures are fairly stable across studies. About two out of three people have secure attachment, about one third doesn't. And about that, and uh, that, that one third, about 10, 12% are disorganized. 10 and 12% are about um, anxious preoccupied attachment and about 10, 10% are dis- dismissive.
1: So people listening to the show have a one, uh, essentially a one one in three chance of having a, an attachment problem. Would you know you had an attachment problem?
2: Not necessarily.
1: How would someone be able to look in the mirror and say, wow, I think that might be
2: me? Because one of the things that happens with attachment is when the child is securely attached, the parents are constantly mirroring the child's feelings and state internal state of mind, and from that, the child develops what's called metacognitive capacity, the capacity to reflect on their own state of mind. So, that when there's attachment impairment, in addition to that, they always have metacognitive deficits. So they don't they don't observe themselves very well, and they don't they don't really know that they have a problem. They just play out the same problem over and over again, but they don't even know why. Wow,
1: one in three. And of course they're going to have an impact on everyone else in the world around them.
2: And then of the, of the one and the three that have two thirds that have a secure attachment, about 40% of those are going to have core conflict relational themes that they have a different map. They'll keep selecting for the same old, same old problems and relationships. Because They'll select as functional partners.
1: So that would be a sign. <laughs> Someone who continuously has bad relationships over and over, the common element is you, and it's probably attachment at least playing a role in that, because you're picking a partner who has a similar attachment problem? Is that what's going no, on? No,
2: that's a separate map. That's a CCRT map, core confrontation <laughs> that, that, devise, that, that develops about a third or fourth year of life.
1: Uh, that's the second one, okay.
2: And that one's, so there are two relation dysfunctional maps here. You have two chances to get it wrong.
1: It turns out that healthy attachment was the main focus of the way uh, my wife, um, who is a medical doctor and studied drug and alcohol addiction, actually worked in the field for a while uh, in, uh, in Sweden. Uh, that was what we focused on for our first four or five years of the kids is just get that right. <laughs> and they can probably be happy later in life, even if we screw something else up as parents. It
2: makes a difference.
1: Uh, so th- thank you for helping to to push that work and that agenda because I I wouldn't have known about that uh, you know before we had kids if I hadn't been able to go out and read some things about it and I'm I'm curious because you have learned Tibetan uh, Buddhist Sanskrit Pali you're a Buddhist meditation master how much of this attachment sort of Western theory is taught in the ancient knowledge that you've studied are you seeing reflections of it or are these unrelated? Unrelated. Unrelated, interesting. Okay, then why did you go down the path of Buddhism?
2: Because in the West, we study psychopathology, psychiatric conditions. In Buddhism, they study the positive states. States, that so that's the other half of the map. Once you work through the negative stuff, that doesn't, all it leaves you with is a basic everyday unhappiness. If you work on developing the Mm -hmm. mind in a positive sense, you move beyond unhappiness to contentment in life, into awakening.
1: So first you fix the broken stuff and then you upgrade or enhance or train or hone, whatever the right words are, the, the good stuff so that you can reach that state of non-suffering.
2: Not just non-suffering, but positivity. Positivity, okay. There's a certain point where you, you eradicate all negative states in practice, a very advanced practice, and, and you have a flourishing of 80 positive states the Buddha Mind. We actually are studying the, neuropsychi- the, neuropsych- the neuroscience of that right now. We have enough subjects that can do that now. In the West, that we're studying what's happening in the brain, when that happens. I,
1: I am very interested in that uh, to the extent uh, that I have a small neuroscience uh, facility in Seattle that uh, is training people on complex states in different parts of the brain with gamma brain waves, uh, with the desire to put them in those advanced altered meditation states that are out there. Uh, and I'm uh, I'm just so impressed with the amount of neuroscience that's come out in the last twenty years.
2: We have the only we have the only neurocircuitry study on awakening.
1: Oh, that's incredible!
2: You found something very, very distinct. Twenty nine subjects, and they all it's sort of the same thing. It's an area of the parietal system that opens up that shifts from a more, more local to a very huge perspective on awareness. And we found gamma activity in all twenty nine subjects in that area of the brain, that region of interest. So, awake means awake.
1: Now you're seeing gamma. Uh, I'm assuming this is an electrical study, EEG study
2: study I did in collaboration with Judd Brewer when he was at UMass Medical School.
1: Okay, but you are getting electrical, not blood flow or any other things like
2: that, right? No, we were looking at uh, 28, 128 channel EEG.
1: Okay, beautiful. Uh, it's, uh, and studying actual awakened states, that is powerful. And I'm uh, very interested and in probably deeper than what most of the audience would, would want to hear about, uh, but around these new states, gamma and how they ride on other states, where it feels like, we're right on the cusp of having enough samples to the point of the study that you're participating in, as well as just enough pictures of normal brains to be able to really tease out more and more and more information about what human brains are capable of.
2: Well, think about a possible scenario where you don't have any negative states really in your experience and you have you manifest 180 state, uh, 80 states of, of positive states at once. I happen to think that has profound implications for mental health.
1: <laughs> I would say so. So
2: this in the last 10 years has been a positive psychology movement, 10 20 years now. Research on positive states, and I think that that has profound implications for mental health, that's why we're studying it.
1: Can you do it? Yes. How often do you put yourself in all 180 positive states at the same time?
2: Well, more the day than not. Wow.
1: Well, I am working on that same, uh, that same state, but I would say I still have some work to do. That's, that's profound. Would you attribute your ability to do that, to reach this state of positivity more often than not? And we're talking very deep positivity. Is it because of your study of this ancient knowledge, the Tibetan bone tradition, or is it yes. from something else?
2: Yes. i work worked with the Tibetans for 48 years now. It's a long time.
1: And you, you did study with the Dalai Lama, which is uh, amazing.
2: He was. In, I was studying with him in the 1970s when my first root Lama, and he were very close. But now, wow. in the last 12 years, I studied with His Holiness Menry Treason, the head of the indigenous bond religion. He's the Dalai Lama's senior Joseon teacher, great completion teacher. And he's the best and, meditation teacher i ever had. He's very, 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 very profound. He died last year. But what he asked me to do was six years ago, and he said he brought out a lot of these advanced curved cave and hermitage yogi texts, and he said, these are the practices that are gonna die out in this, in this generation alone. I have a favor to ask you, would you translate them all? Would you put them in form that works for Westerners? What am we gonna do, say no, I don't feel like it? <laughs> so I suspended my clinical practice and, and my, most of my clinical teaching for three and a half years, and we got eight books of translations done in that time.
1: Can people read these today?
2: Yes, the cave yogi texts are all collected in a volume called Self-Arising Threefold Embodiment of Enlightenment.
1: I will put links to that in the show notes and I will be reading those. Now, something that has always been uh, unanswered in my mind is I I went to Mount Kailash uh, years ago and I did the Korah around Mount Kailash. For listeners uh, who don't uh, know about this, Mount Kailash is a very holy mountain in uh, Buddhism, uh, in the Hindu religion, and also in Tibetan bone. And people walk around this in a sort of a holy walk, a 26-mile walk. Uh, but in the, the bone uh, religion, you walk counterclockwise and then the Tibetan uh, religion, you walk clockwise. Uh, and I walked clockwise because I had just come out of a monastery and spent you know 10 days there, Copan um, Monastery, which you probably are familiar with. And uh, so I, I learned something about this, but I felt like it was always this sort of corner. like, oh, that's an older religion. That's out there. And it seems like it had some shamanic roots in it. Can you describe what you learned, the difference between that older lineage and the other lineages you've studied for people listening? Because I think that's, it's a new idea for almost everyone.
2: Well, the Buddha Shakyamuni was two to 2,500 years ago. But there were Buddhas before Shakyamuni Buddha. In the Bon tradition, there was Tom Sherab who lived to eight hundred years ago. So their practices are more evolved and more detailed and more accessible. So Dzogchen, for example, a great completion practice, as we call it, has been around for eight hundred years. And I find that their texts are far more accessible and much more detailed because they've been doing it much longer. That's why I switched to the bond.
1: Okay, so just making it accessible. Do you believe that uh, things like Heart rate variability training, uh, neurofeedback, uh, biofeedback, all these different modalities, or, or breathing exercises, or even LSD, which you worked with when it was still legal to do that. Are any of these ways of accelerating attainment, or are those all distractions? All distractions. Every one of them. Okay.
2: In the instant you focus on something, or even when the mind moves towards something, at that instant, you're focusing on something particular. And as soon as you start moving in the direction of something particular, you can't grasp the unbounded wholeness. It's always right here. So you see the problem every time you look to the feedback on the machine, you're drawing yourself out of that unbounded wholeness. I,
1: I have experienced that and I, I found when I set my equipment up in certain ways, the only way to make the signal get strong is to not pay attention to the signal, <laughs> which is very frustrating. It, it, it took two weeks of focusing on not focusing, if there is such a thing, in order to be able to say, aha, and then you feel this melting and this kind of warmth in your chest and when you're observing it, in these it,
2: traditions, the best way of doing it is not through feedback. The best way of doing it is with pith instructions. We have very clear instructions as part of the detailed intensity of the relationship. The instructions make it open the whole thing up for you.
1: The instructions of you know, visualize the Buddha sitting on a thing and visualize it very carefully, or some other you, kinds no,
2: of instructions? All instructions about how to open up the mind. Pith Can you give me an example? Yeah, suppose I said to you right now, look in the surrounding space. See it as not empty space, but see it as an awareness space, a field of awareness space that saturates everything, without inside, without outside, a field of knowing awareness space. You can do that. Mm-hmm. Now look at the timeless aspect of the field. The events will come and go within time, within the field, but the field itself is absolutely timeless. Identify the timeless aspect of the field right now. You got that? Uh, yeah. Now extend it out in all directions, so it's not only timeless, but boundless and limitless. Okay come to see that that's where you're operating on of. it it's true see how simple that is just follow the instructions it, it opens it right up that's what a good a teacher does for you
1: I absolutely felt that, Uh, although right in the middle of it, somewhere when you went into Timeless, I felt a a twinge of anxiety, actually, which is strange. There's clearly, I have some little internal resistance to overcome for that, but it it feels like a good teacher can help you dial in on why that would happen. You
2: just focus on what, you don't get distracted by it.
1: So you just ignore it and just keep going into that? No,
2: if it becomes a problem, then we'll address it, and it's part of the relationship. All all the instructions are given, we say, from heart to heart as part of the relationship.
1: Wow, uh, it's it's so mind blowing. Although I guess in this case maybe mind enhancing is a is a better perspective That's better on it.
2: Talking about, right?
1: How does it relate to things like uh, PTSD and and a, a lot of people? Because I've I've done a decent amount of neurofeedback training um, with clients, uh, and certainly a lot on myself. Uh, and it it feels like quite often they'll stumble into something that is uh, an old trauma. And I'm asking you because, well, you were a witness for the, the war crimes uh, tribunal on, on people who are traumatized. You know about trauma very deeply. Where's the map between these states and trauma or specifically PTSD?
2: Well, again, the distinction in the East and West is between negative states and positive states. So okay. PTSD is, uh, there are two things that are going on from a neurosurgery point of view. One has to do with an fear arousal. Okay. So the amygdala is is like a broken fire alarm. It's the fear arousal center of the brain is constantly on, it doesn't shut off. And the medial prefrontal cortex, which usually gives top down regulation of that, doesn't shut off. It doesn't shut it off. So you get unremitting fear arousal. That's one thing that happens. And that's what we that's what we call um hyperarousal predominant PTSD, which is about seventy percent of PTSD cases. It's another thirty percent of PTSD cases that are dissociation predominant. And what they have is not so much fear arousal, but the opposite of that. They disconnect from all, all the emotions. They disconnect the medial prefrontal cortex from the limbic system, so they don't feel anything, and they don't remember anything. They dis- they disconnect the memory circuits for autobiographical emotional memories. So the uh, two, two, two two presentations. Mm. One is and unremitting fear arousal, and the other is the, the lack of feelings, what we call the difference between positive symptoms and negative symptoms. So, and they're, they're, they're different, this, Ruth Lanius did a study in Canada where she had a, a couple who were gotten a severe motor vehicle accident and, and they had different personality styles and different brain styles, so one had dissociation predominant PTSD and the other had hyperarousal predominant PTSD with the same accident. That was pretty convincing. Wow.
1: Uh, that is going to be extremely useful just to have the same thing happen. What about very early birth? I, I was diagnosed with birth-based PTSD. I was born with a cord wrapped around my neck and I did some heavy-duty regressive work and breathing and holotropic breathing and a lot of, of work on that and I've let probably most of it go. What's the role of birth and experiences in the womb with PTSD and, and these other attachment states that you mentioned later?
2: Well, the trouble is that we don't have a narrative memory for that. We have a, a behavioral enacted memory for that, but it's not a narrative memory. So if we fill in the blanks with a narrative memory, it's mostly fantasy produced. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It's does not traumatic. It just tend to register more in terms of bodily states and somatic states rather than in terms of narrative memory.
1: It, it would be all body states at the time because, I mean, yeah, that's, your prefrontal cortex true. isn't cooked that's, yet. <laughs>
2: that's, that's, that's true.
1: I agree with okay. you. Okay. It, is it real? And this, this idea that what happens in the womb affects you later in life?
2: It can. It depends on the person.
1: It depends on the person. Got it. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body, and those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Depends on the person. Got it. Uh, I uh, I spent some time with the founder of the American Pre and Perinatal Psychology Association uh, years ago and we talked about it a lot and, and certainly it seemed like there were some personality types that came out from it. But when I take that and I combine it with all of this other knowledge that's out there, particularly some of the ancient knowledge, I you know, I, I like your model, okay? Fix the broken stuff and then what else are you going to do here? Uh if someone listening believes that they have early childhood trauma, whether it's you know, around birth or the first three or four years uh, around that, what would they do? Like, What's the first step to saying, I think I'd like to fix the broken stuff? Who would you go see? How, how would you?
2: Well, there's, the standard model that evolved in the field was for what's called phase-oriented trauma treatment, POT, P-O-O-T-T, phase-oriented trauma treatment. There know, three phases. The first is you stabilize the person. You, you teach them how to, to enter safe, a sense of zone of safety you enhance their coping strategies. You help them stabilize their mind, and then only after you do that, you provide them with the tools to stabilize their experience. Then you explore the memories and integrate the memories. And the third, the third phase is to get them back on the right developmental track. Tra- Tracks, so you enhance their self development. You enhance their capacity for healthy, mature relationships in adult life, for healthy affective exploration and, and uh, expression. How long does that usually take? A couple of years. Couple of years, hard yes, work. We, that, that that was the model phase trauma treatment involved in the 1970s and 80s. But then we began to see in the 1990s that some people didn't work so well for.
1: What do you do for those people?
2: Some of those people we call having complex trauma. And most of the the the, the erroneous assumption that developed in the field is that people who had complex trauma had cumulative trauma, many traumatic events. That's not what we found. We did a study called the Orphanage Study. I did a lot of priest abuse cases. So we, every, wow. time we, every time we did priest abuse case, I'd do two days of testing. So we got a massive database on people who had recovered memories. So we eventually looked at all that data. And what we found, one there was one a Catholic orphanage in Madonna Manor in 1950s in Northern New Orleans. And the brilliance of the Catholic Church was when the priest got accused of being a pedophile, they'd put them all together in the same orphanage, running an orphanage. Ah. Uh. So they had six pedophile priests running the orphanage and then most of they hired a pedophile staff so you could see the kids were canning fodder for these, these pedophiles.
1: That's horrifying.
2: It's horrifying. So many years later then one of them started recovering memories and we tested them in some detail. But turned out to be an interesting database because all of them were abused by the same abusers for the same amount of time in the same way, physically and sexually. But the difference was attachment status. A lot of them come from uh, from broken homes, they were, they were they had disorganized attachment. You know, the mother was running a brothel in the house, the father was running a meth uh. lab in the basement, and these kids were foraging for food on the streets. So they were picked up by child services and brought to the orphanage. But a lot of the, a lot of the kids were from healthy homes, with big Catholic families. So the father would have to work two or three jobs to afford all those kids. And that often meant working a risky job like working on the oil rigs. And the father would get an industrial accident and he'd get Injured or killed, and the family would break up. And the kids were sent to the orphanage, mm. and it turns out the variable was attachment status. So there's a way you can t- assess attachment in adults called the Adult Attachment Inventory, which is a complicated structured interview, but it's, a, it's very real, it's The gold standard for re- assessing attachment in adults. So we gave that to everybody, and we found out there were two groups of the orphans, orphanage kids: the ones had secure attachment, and they had circumscribed Axis One symptoms like PTSD. Depression, anxiety, panic states, somatiform disorders. But then none of them had a personality disorder, none of them had major dissociative disorders. But the people who had uh, disorganized attachment, in addition to having those PTSD, they all had a major dissociative disorder, personality disorder, and an emergent dissociative disorder. So what does that tell you? It's not cumulative trauma, it's disorganized attachment aggravated by later abuse in childhood. Aha. Uh-huh. So because of that, we started, we started changing the model and trying to treat the attachment, disorganized attachment rather than treating the trauma. Because what we found in the 1980s and the 1990s was that people who had assumed that complex trauma was based on more traumatization, they'd keep tra- processing the trauma, and the minds of those patients were getting more and more disorganized. It wasn't working. So we had to adjust the model for this different population this, to, to treat the attachment disorders. The main primary focus of the treatment. And then later we would treat the attachment and it was easy, really simple memory processing work later in the treatment, in the last 10% of the treatment. And it's, it was, it's easy to, you know, you know, get this interminable going over many, many memories and over and over and over again, finding more and more and more again, more disorganized. So we just had to adjust a new model for this different group to treat the disorganized attachment first and then the trauma second. And we began to see, after we developed phase-oriented trauma treatment in the 1970s and 80s, we began to see there are other populations of people who didn't fit that successful model of treatment, like victims of sadistic abuse. Sadistic abuse isn't about it's a, isn't about sex; it's about power and control. So sadistic abuses like to get into the mind of their individuals. So it's often accompanied by mind control games, power and control, and asserting dominance, and often by a lot of verbal abuse and physical infliction of pain. So the trouble is that that the way that trauma treatment evolved. You, you make a person feel safe, you Give them, you, you go off to a safe place, then you help them develop coping strategies to deal with intrusive symptoms so they stabilize the symptom picture before you get into the memory processing. And the more they get to, you get to know the, 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 the patient in the treatment, what should happen eventually is when you stabilize them, then you can go start presenting, processing the memories. But what happens is that for the people who are victims of sadistic abuse, to be known is to have their mind controlled. So what happens is the, the, the further they get into the stabilization, the more they back off from the uncovering. And they get more and more unstable because they think they're going to take over their mind. So a traditional approach to transference interpretation. How, how do you imagine I'm going to take over your mind? You play it off the here and now transference. Let's imagine the ways that I'm, going to, I'm going to take over your mind. How am I going to control you? And have them fantasize all the ways that they think they're going to do it. And, and you, you have a patient Stable inquiry when you're not you're not actually acting like that, but you're looking into the fact that it could possibly mm. happen with you. Then they feel safe in the relationship. That way it becomes an emotionally corrective relationship, as we call it. So what we began to see is that phase-oriented treatment worked for the large majority of people who were traumatized individuals. But then we had to perfect very different treatments for different folks that were that, that didn't work for. So now we have a much more larger perspective on what mm-hmm. this given individual may need that we have to match the treatment to that given individual so one size doesn't fit all for trauma treatment
1: is there someone who can't be fixed because of their trauma are people do people just get so broken that there's no hope
2: i don't believe that at all
1: i don't either i'm glad you said that
2: I couldn't be able <laughs> Thank to 50 years and believe that yeah. <laughs> I think what's changed over 50 years is that I used to start when I started in the field with the dominant model was psychoanalysis. So you sort of sat back and just let it unfold. I don't do that anymore. I've spent uh, 50 years reading outcomes research and now I know where where a person needs to go. It would yeah. be much more active to get them there in the shortest amount of time possible.
1: If I would trust anyone's opinion on this on earth, I think given your background and the depth of your exploration here, I, I would trust that. So uh, th- thank you for that. So if there I guarantee you there's someone listening to this show who feels like they're you know, alone and hopelessly broken. Uh, there are things we know now that can get you back to where you wanna be, at least back to normal. And if they decide to go down some of the other stuff, there's something far beyond normal that's also possible. So th- thank you for sharing that.
2: It's also Mahayana Buddhist perspective and in, in great vehicle of the Mahayana no one is left behind. Yeah, exactly. It's also about therapy. No one's left behind. Yeah, the enlightenment of all
1: beings. Let's talk about hypnosis, which is also something where you are uh, very, very knowledgeable. You spent 150 hours with Saran Saran, who was charged with assassinating Robert F. Kennedy uh, and his attorney. And people have said, oh, maybe he was subjected to course of hypnosis. What did you learn from that time, uh, well, let me with, say something you know, about
2: figure. hypnosis first.
1: Yeah, okay, let's do it.
2: Hypnosis is a talent, It's like musical ability. Some people are more talented than others. But eight percent, eight percent of the population is highly hypnotizable. They're the virtuosos of hypnosis. Mm-hmm. About four percent of people are not hypnotizable at all. Everybody's in between. Most people are in the moderate range of hypnotizability. What is the talent for? Is it's a talent for heightened attentiveness. If you remind people to pay very careful attention and tune everything else out people will activate a state of heightened attentiveness and they're very focused and they can resist distraction in an extraordinary degree and stay on track with things so that's what we call hypnosis it's, it's it's a talent to to focus in a very fast and heightened way but we would say that hypnosis is in the treatment it's the medium of treatment if you're treating with somebody with anxiety disorders we know that uh, exposure-based protocols for say panic attack work work more well but if you do it in the hypnotic state where you're more focused and less distracted, well, you want to come to mm-hmm. the same ground much more quickly. You still have to bring the right protocol to it. So I wouldn't say that hypnosis is a treatment. You still have to bring to what we know about the best approach to that given condition for, for that treatment is. But if you do it in hypnosis, it's much quicker, much faster. Now the second you mentioned Sirhan, I, yeah, I did, I did work with him for 150 hours. And The reason why I got involved in the case is in the year 2006, a Brad, a Brad Johnson, a CNN reporter, was going through the archives in Sacramento and he found an audio tape that was left by a Canadian filmist, and VO VCR tape. Remember those?
1: Mm-hmm, I remember VCRs.
2: And, 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 uh, and he had a, it had really good sound quality. If you listen to it with a naked ear, you could hear 13 shots being fired five wow. simultaneously. If you look at the current generation of software, you can show without a shadow of a doubt that there were 13 shots fired, five simultaneously. Oh my the goodness. Sirhan couldn't have been the main shooter. The other problem was that the Noguchi, who did the autopsy said it couldn't have been Sirhan that fired the fatal shot on Kennedy because the the, the fatal bullet was to the right side of the neck, point right mm-hmm. blank, because the powder burns. It was a hollow point that exploded to 200 pieces in the in the brainstem. That's why he got taken out so thoroughly. Oh, wow. Sirhan, Sirhan was in the wrong direction. He was never more than four or five feet closer.
1: So the narrative simply isn't true and based on evidence.
2: It's not based on evidence. Wow. So we started, my, my, my task was to do non-suggestive interviewing to see if Sirhan remembered anything. We found out more than we thought we should. Wow. And Sirhan, I've, I've hypnotized 6,000 people in my career, as tra- training people in hypnosis. Sirhan is the most hypnotizable person I've ever met.
1: Wow, so he'd been trained to be hypnotized probably.
2: Well, it turns out that when he was a late adolescent, his sister who was, I think, three or four years younger than him, died of leukemia. And he found he was very close to his sister, and he found that unacceptable to her, to him. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to find out whether it was life after death, so he made his way to the Theosophical Society and eventually to the Rosicrucians. He started a hypnosis correspondence course with the Rosicrucians. And at the time, he worked as a hot walker at a Santa Anita racetrack. And he and he and the, 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 the kids at the racetrack, they are all brushing down the horses, all were practicing on hypnosis in the same class together. It was clear that he was enormous, enormously different from anybody else's behavior. So that was obvious to the people who ran the racetrack. Now, Sirhan always had a dream to be a, a jockey, but he'd never ridden a thoroughbred. And Frankie, who worked at Santa Bernardino, who was partly with mafia involved, called him up one day and said, I have a job for you to ride thoroughbreds at Corona Ranch. Would you want the job? And he said, yes. It was a dream. You don't take a kid who's never ridden a thoroughbred and give him a quarter million dollar horse to ride. It's too risky for the horse. Two right. weeks later, he had a he had a fall from that horse, and he was um, uh, gone to the emergency room. With he had four stitches in his eye. And the emergency room said they discharged him that day, but that's not what he remembered. He told me he was missing for three weeks, and his mother, who he home every week from that new, new ranch, he was working at Corona. And the mother, we had an affidavit written by her before she died, and his best friend Terry saying he was missing for three weeks. And that's where they did the program on And the ranch was called Corona Ranch. No, it was Corona. Town of corona, so he was he was programmed, he was put in a special unit and and they were taking urine samples all day. You don't take urine samples with head injuries, but you do for drugs,
1: yep, so we think like LSD. They drugged
2: him. yeah, we think they drugged him, and they 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 put him in there for three weeks and then when he got out, he had to see this eye doctor, and the eye doctor would spray things in his eyes and he would, he would get in an altered state of consciousness. And he did that for for twelve weeks, and he couldn't drive after that, wow and then this strange man came up to him he was waiting in the car after he got to to the across the street there was a diner he was waiting in the diner and the strange man came up to him with a, a manifesto about shooting government officials and that was his trainer and then but what, what they did is they trained him to be a distractor and mm-hmm. what became obvious to me was that that he was trained to give me certain cues so one time i tapped him on the Shoulder the arm, the elbow twice like that, which is a typical, typical thing you do for a postoperative suggestion. He got up and he started to he went up like this. He took a stance like this, and he and he got his and he, what we call range mode. He started. He started c- c- citing military terms. Military terms, grant you, about about shooting at vital human organs. So we learned how to trigger a range mode. This is Jason
1: Bourne kind of stuff. My goodness, it
2: is. It is. I, I couldn't believe it, but they wouldn't let us film anything. But we we, we saw him any time. We could activate range mode. I learned the triggers for it. So he was wow. there to be a distractor. Wow.
1: I mean, when you talk about this, what do people say? Do they believe you or do they, they sort of wipe themselves out? That can't well, be real and just go about their daily business.
2: Well, some people believe it. Sundance believed it. Robert Redford and Sundance made a film on it. They made a film of me, or all the all the all the findings we discovered.
1: Oh, I didn't. I haven't seen that film. It's not. It's not the even in my research. How can it I miss that? It doesn't exist.
2: It doesn't exist. Oh. Because two years later, they find uh, did a three way contract with Netflix and Showtime, and they cut everything out. They edited everything away. Oh. So Shane O'Sullivan, who wrote a, a documentary on R.F.K. Must Die ten years ago, was pissed off about the fact that they did that. So he filmed me. You put on a, a thing called um, whatwherewhy.org, and now it's made it to YouTube. It's on a thing called Review of Ensuring on YouTube. Wow.
0: Well, I'll
1: put a link to that in our show notes as well. This is truly astounding. I mean, a, a world-class expert in hypnosis, you'd be very well equipped to do that. Your expertise in attachment theory and these advanced... Uh, you know, very advanced meditation uh, states uh, from uh, from the past, <laughs> and, and Harvard professorship. You're a you're a heck of a guy. Did you come into the world like this? I mean, where, did you come in half enlightened and you're just on the path, or what? What's your theory for what makes you able to do these things at the level of excellence you've
2: you've done them at your entire life? No, I started as an ordinary student until what did I was you in do fourth different? grade. There was a teacher who really took interest in me, and she saw some talent in me, and I just blossomed that year. What was her name? Mrs. Merchant. I went from a, a C student to a straight-A student and never turned back after that.
1: Did you ever get a chance to thank her?
2: Yeah, I went back when I was in my 20s, and I was doing my internship at Harvard, and I went back to see her. We both cried. I thanked her for what she did for me. Yeah.
1: Teachers matter so much, uh, and we, we've got to pay them more. It would solve, solve so many
2: problems. I agree. Yeah, changed my life around.
1: Wow, that's uh, that's that's why kids are so precious uh, because that's when the leverage happens, especially around that time. You know, fourth, fifth grade, even before that, uh, we get it right, and uh, what a difference!
2: It's not been a boring life, I have to say that. <laughs> I would say not, but I got I paid dearly for the Sirhan thing. I got five tax audits. I have a tag on my account from the U.S. Treasury Department, top official saying they should harass me as possible within the boundaries of law for the rest of my life. Every time I got on the plane for three years, they, they took my bags and they would search them and I'd get them back two days later.
1: Do you regret it?
2: No, I'm pissed off. That didn't happen. There's no police state. I'm of the belief that we have, you have kids. I think what we pass on to our future generation is important. We have a precious democracy. I don't want to piss it away. It's worth fighting for.
1: Well, guys, uh, my mind is blown and... I think this is more than one episode so what we're going to do is record another whole hour's worth of storytelling and learning for you uh, with dan brown uh, because there's a whole bunch more about self-esteem and about the development of the self that we're going to go into and if you enjoyed this episode i would love it if you heard the second one Uh, It is my intent on uh, Bulletproof Radio to learn from the masters, and if you haven't figured it out by now, (laughs) this is one of the living legends, one of the masters, Uh, and what a fantastic mind expanding interview so far. I can't wait to do the next
2: half of it. My pleasure. I look forward to coming back.
1: If you'd like to learn more, go to attachmentproject.com. That's just as you'd expect it to be spelled, attachmentproject.com. You can learn more about Dan's work, but his work is very broad and very deep. You could spend a year studying it or more and probably still not do everything. I'll see you all in the next episode.
0: The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey.